Father in heaven, I thank you that you have brought us to this place today. Now, Lord, we come expecting to hear a word from you. Speak to our hearts in a way that will transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start by building on that song we were just singing there. Step one in accomplishing any great work for God is we must recognize the greatness of God. We're singing praise to Jesus there and talking about his surpassing glory and power and and all of these things. And I just want to say to you, step one in accomplishing any great work for God is to recognize that greatness. Why? Because when we understand the greatness of God, we will feel that awesomeness in our souls. And it will change us. It will change the way we behave. Yeah, you could call it the fear of the Lord if you wanted. Though it's much more than a narrow terror regarding punishment. In fact, Scripture says the fear of the Lord, the recognition of the greatness of God is the beginning of wisdom. Have you begun to be wise yet? When we recognize the greatness of God, it changes our behavior because life is no longer a confusing series of arbitrary choices in which we don't have much guidance, we don't know what to do. No, instead, when we recognize the greatness of God, we recognize that we are living our lives as an act of worship before this great God who has given us life. And not only did He give us life, He also redeemed us when we sinned and fell away. When we recognize the greatness of God, it turns out there's not much need for for long, detailed laws, and there's, there's little need for enforcement authorities because when we see our lives as lived out in worship, we begin by nature to do what God commands. The law moves from being something written on stone to being written on our hearts, from existing as something outside of us to becoming new life within us. One of the amazing things, if you have a group of people who are all recognizing the greatness of God, they can live together without many laws. They, they live together under the honor system. I'll say more about that in a moment, but first an example. When I was a child, I spent my early elementary school years living in Collegedale, Tennessee, first grade to sixth grade. It was the early 70s, and in those days, Chattanooga was a world away, Ultawa was just a funny name, the McKee Baking Company only had one plant, and Four Corners was just a drugstore at a four-way stop. And if you've ever been to Collegedale, you know what I just described. If you haven't, let me break it down to you. In those days, Collegedale was isolated. Now, one could argue that wasn't good. No contact, no witness. No witness. I, I don't know about that. I suppose you could make a case for that. But here's what I do know about those days. It was a great place to grow up. I don't know where you grew up or where you're growing up. I know it wasn't per, per, perfect, but let me tell you what normal was like for me growing up. We never locked our cars. And if you forgot to lock yours, you may want to run out to the parking lot and take care of that. (laughs) We never locked our cars in our driveway at home, 
at the church where my dad was the pastor, at the village market where we bought food, and it didn't matter. You could leave your keys on the seat with the windows down and your sunglasses on the dash, and nobody was going to take them. Not only did we not lock our cars, we didn't lock our houses either, even at night, even when we went on vacation. When I was a kid, between the ages of 6 and 12, that's how old I was there, we kids could go safely just about anywhere that we could ride our bikes, and our moms didn't worry about us as long as we got home in time for supper. I remember sometimes when we were kids, we would go out, there were woods around in various places, and a bunch of us kids would get together, and we would go out on a weekend night, and we would camp in the woods, no parents along to keep us safe because it wasn't dangerous. The oldest one of us was 13, maybe 14. Now, I'm not naive. I realize not everyone in the community was engaged in a perfect walk with Jesus. Yet there was enough recognition of the greatness of God on the part of the whole community that the spillover effect on how I as a child was able to live my life was profound. I sure would love to live like that again. I'd never lock myself out of the house, never lock my keys in the car. And while my kids have never lived in a truly dangerous neighborhood, their experience sure hasn't been mine. The point I'm trying to make is this, when we all recognize the greatness of God and we all live our lives as a worship to Him, our community life is very good. And in everything we win together. But when some in the community begin to live selfishly, we all lose. Which brings us to a Bible story I want to consider this morning. It's a story that follows one you probably know very well, the story of the walls of Jericho. A quick review of that story. God gave a plan to Joshua on how they were going to take the city of Jericho. It was a crazy plan, walk around it a bunch of times and the walls will fall. He passed on that crazy plan to the rest of the leaders. They told the army, the people got behind the plan and the Lord delivered a great victory. They won together. But trouble happened after the victory, Joshua 7 verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. You see, God had said before the fight, I'm going to give you this victory, and you will show your thanks for this victory by dedicating all the spoils to God. Everything was to be either burned or dedicated and given over to the priests for the work in the sanctuary. But Achan had a different idea. And he figured he could get away with it, and nobody would even know. And in truth, he would have gotten away with it because no human caught him. Yet, God was unwilling to just let it go this time. And that kind of reminds me of another Bible story. We'll come back to this story about Achan. But it reminds me of another Bible story, only this one's in the New Testament, not the Old. This one comes from Acts chapter 4. And for context, we've got to go back to 
to verse 32. The real story is in 5, but Acts 4, 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Can you imagine that community? From time to time, those who owned land or homes sold them, brought the money from the sale, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now there is a community experience even better than the one I had growing up. There was faith and love and confidence and charity in that community, but if you've ever been a part of a community like that, you know it does, that it takes a lot of trust. Everybody's got to really trust each other for this to happen and continue, and it doesn't take too many instances where you bump into dishonesty and deception that a community like that begins to unravel. I don't know when the change occurred, but today... Most people in Collegedale lock their cars and their houses. Acts 4.36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. There was high regard in this early church for those who gave for the sake of others. And I don't know if you've noticed this in your life, the desire to be highly regarded can lead to disaster. Acts 5, verse 1, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now it's important that we understand what's happening here because the Lord is about to intervene in this story in a very dramatic way. There's an important concept. It isn't wrong to sell property and then donate just a portion of the value of it, but that's not the point of this, of this whole story. What's wrong to do is to sell property in the context of where people are bringing it all and then pretend you're doing the same thing so that you will be honored just like Barnabas. The problem in the story is not narrowly the act of only donating a part, but instead the problem is the deception in which Ananias and Sapphira are engaged, implying they are doing what everyone else is doing when in fact they're not doing what everyone else is doing. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that where you want to be regarded as a Barnabas? without having to actually act like one? Verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Then when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. This story is what happens to us when we lose sight of the greatness of God. 
when in trying to gain honor, we lose our honor. Yet mostly when we do these things, maybe you've noticed this, mostly when we do these kinds of things, the immediate judgment of God does not fall upon us like it did upon Ananias, and shortly, if you keep reading, like it did upon Sapphira as well. Most times, the Lord allows us to deceive each other and even to deceive ourselves into believing we are getting away with deception. But we never get away with it completely. And once suspicion begins to grow that we have deceivers in our midst, what do we do? What do we do? We all pull back, don't we? We quit being quite so open. And we start locking our cars and our houses because we just don't know who we can trust. The honor system breaks down. And instead of openness and generosity and kindness and love, we find ourselves living very closed lives, consumed by suspicion and fear of each other, and finally we end up living in isolation and loneliness. And this is the exact opposite of winning together. There are key times when the Lord was determined to not let this happen. The early church was one of those times, and the days of Achan were another. Joshua 7, verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servants, Lord. What can I say? Now now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. When we lose sight of the greatness of God, we stop winning together. And we only start truly winning together again when we own our deceptions and repent 
and change our ways. I think that's what Alejandro was saying to us in our prayer time. So where am I going with this? Well, first, throughout history, God doesn't usually deal with our dishonesty as dramatically as He did in these two events. And I suppose that should be a comfort for us as we sit here and ponder all the times we've been dishonest with each other. But just because we don't fall down dead when we scorn the greatness of God doesn't mean we get away with it. Maybe we keep living, but with every dishonest act, with every misleading word, every time we put ourselves ahead at the expense of others, every time we do these things, we chip another piece off the beautiful statue that we could be together. We let a little more air out of that hot air balloon that is supposed to make us soar. We can't figure out why we can't get the basket off the ground. We keep letting the air out. Every time we put another scar on the body of Christ until what we become hardly looks like Jesus at all. And when we do these things, we become the opposite of winning together. We become like Israel before the city eye. Taking Jericho should have been impossible, but because God was with them, Israel won easily. Taking Ai should have been no problem, but because of selfishness and dishonesty, God was left behind and Israel was routed. It's not even really fair to say they did it because really it was Achan. But that's the thing about winning together. You don't truly win together unless everybody's part of the win together. Don't lose sight of the greatness of God because when we do, even if only a few of us do, we don't win. So what's the formula for winning? Always remember the greatness of God. Live in awe of God's mighty power and His goodness and His love. Be honest with each other and love each other. That's how we win together. So that's the key spiritual lesson that I want you to take home today. But I want to add one more practical application to it. And that is that this church is together involved in a project called Building Boldly for Jesus. And let me say, this project needs to be for us a Jericho, not an I. But the power to make it one or the other is holy in our hands. Are we generous enough to make it happen? Are we committed to each other enough to make it happen? Are we sufficiently confident in our leaders? Our pastors, our lay leaders, the adcom of this church, the building committee of this church, the church board, a church business meeting. Let me just say, regarding this project, at all of those venues, it has always been a 100% agreement that this is what the Lord is calling us to do. Now, that means one of two things. Either every leader in this church is horribly deluded, or God is actually calling us to do this thing. I believe God is calling us to do this thing. And we need to win together. Now, I've asked Alicia to join me 
and I think she's going to. My wife, Alicia, is here. She's taking a little break there. But I've asked her to come up here and share with you the why, the vision, the purpose. Good morning, church. Lately, there have been two major things on my husband's mind, me and this building project. And uh, several days ago, we were laying in bed and talking about the building project and his last sermon and this next one, the one he just preached. And I remember once again being amazed at his knowledge of the Bible and just the gift God's given him for clarity of thought and for powerful speaking skills and, and his love for the church, for this church. And I also remember saying to him, keep fleshing out the vision of why we're doing this building project. Keep the vision in front of people. I was still very weak after the last round of chemo, but whatever I said apparently made an impression on him because he said, will you say that in church next Sabbath? Well, my energy level and my health have been really unpredictable since I started chemo. And at that point, I hadn't um, been walking around for several days. I'd just been on my back. But I said, if I can, I will. This building project, as you know, is not just about new walls and carpets and more space, even though it's going to be a very, very beautiful space. It's about people. It's an investment in our families and in the future. And it's especially an investment in our children. Our children are precious. We cannot overestimate the importance of these little people in the eyes of heaven. God knows how precious they are. He is so in tune with their prayers. Jesus told us, see that you do not despise these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. They get FaceTime, its original meaning. But we can be short-sighted about the value of children. They interrupt grown-up business matters. They're not impressed with posturing or our titles. And they take up so much time. But Jesus, who was the most important person ever and who only had three and a half years to do the mission that he was sent to do, had time for them. He was indignant when the disciples did not see their importance and tried to stop them from coming. Let's invite the children to come, church. And let's make it inviting for the children to come. Let's show parents that we know the value of these kids and that we know how hard it is to get them up on time 
and dressed and ready for church and that we're going to make it as easy as possible. The Bible says that they will bring Jesus in with them, that they will teach us how to appropriately relate to Jesus, that they will show us what the kingdom of heaven is like, that they're a part of it now, and that they are its future. Because we need to never forget that we are only one generation away from Christianity dying out any time in Earth's history. And if they don't come when they're little, it has been proven over and over that is statistically unlikely that they will come when they're teens or when they are adults. Because God is not the only one that understands the value and power of children. Satan is very clear on their value. He has many industries built on the mission of stealing away their affections, their thoughts, and their minds. Movies and games, songs and stories, multi-billion dollar multimedia ways to warp their affections, destroy their identities, harden their hearts, sear their consciences, teach them to trust that wrong is right, and to sympathize with and idolize evil figures. And in a country that has been convinced that there is no real being called Satan, for decades at least, Satan has become increasingly bold. While adults are too busy to raise them, Satan is inviting the little children to come unto him in every way he can. As evidenced by a statue that maybe you heard of that was recently put up in public places in Detroit in 2015. It's a statue of the symbol of Satan, what has become a symbol of Satan with the head of a goat it's a huge bronze statue. He's sitting in a chair, like on a throne, with an upside-down star, the pentagram with a circle over his head. He's got a good-looking male body, one that's been working out. But the most chilling thing is that on either side of him is a little boy and a little girl looking up at him adoringly. And just in case this picture causes you alarm, the satanic priestess who was there at the unveiling and was the spokesperson for the satanic church wants to deceive you further by saying that what this represents is a celebration of opposites and embracing of differences and that they do not promote a personal belief in Satan. In place of the visual I just painted, I want to offer you this. This painting is made more amazing by the fact that the little boy pictured in it is based on one of our own children here at Forest Lake Church. His name was Johnny. The Blair family understands the importance of little children. Pastor Barb has told me the story of a very powerful leader in the community, Martian Blair, the former president and CEO of Adventist Health Systems, who spent his weekdays with powerful people 
And he spent his Sabbaths not in the front row or on the platform, but in the mother's room with little Johnny, who wasn't able to sit in the services. I don't know where our energies could be spent in the coming year that would be more important than winning the hearts and minds of our children to Jesus. I don't know what we could spend money on that would be more important than making a beautiful space for them that will give them foundational early memories of happy, fun times with mom and dad in the church. That their earliest memories would be of singing to Jesus, that their most foundational song would be, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And having their hearts open to his love and their minds opened to the awe and wonder of such a powerful God and how safe they are with him because he's also their heavenly dad. Where they won't wonder why their bathroom at home smells better than the bathroom for them at church and where they will be wowed by the things of God where their first stories will be true ones like this. Jesus called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. When we welcome children, we welcome Jesus. And wouldn't we like to have more of Jesus in this place? And don't you want our children to have Jesus? They need him. They need him now. They will need him as they grow up because life here is beautiful because it can also be brutal sometimes. And they will love eternity with him. As most of you know, I'm fighting breast cancer. And I guess it's been hard. I get really, really sick from the chemo. But I'm telling you the truth. When most of the time, what I'm thinking when I'm lying there on the couch or on the bed is, I am so blessed. I must be the most blessed con cancer patient in America. I have a loving husband. I have insurance. I have an amazing family. I have an amazing church family. I have a work family that supports me, and students who write me encouraging texts. I think that anybody I've ever been a little kind to has come out of the woodwork to bless me sevenfold during this time. Strangers on the street have been kind to me. And um, people I never have met before are praying for me. And I'm very, very clear that every good thing I have is because of Jesus. I'd like to end with a visual surprise that my amazing family, Aaron, who is in Chattanooga, this 
year. Nathan, who's at Andrews in Michigan, Gable's home with me this year, this semester anyway. This is the surprise that I had my eyes closed and, and Jeff said, I thought Aaron, Gable, and Ariel were going to bring me flowers or something. And very quietly I could hear them come in. And this is what I opened my eyes to. Do you notice anything about them? They had shaved their heads because mine has been falling out by such handfuls that um, they didn't want me to be alone in that. And so you know why they did this. You've seen it before. It's a sign of solidarity. It's saying you're not alone. We are with you. And we will suffer the shame of having no hair with you. And um, that's what we want to do, church, with this campaign. I don't want just some of us to have the blessing of knowing when those doors are opened that our $10 a month or 100 or 1000 whatever God lays on your heart and is in your account, made that happen and that you're a part even after you die maybe or even after you move maybe of bringing people to Jesus in that space. I don't want you to be one of the ones that wish they had given. And this is so not a coercive invitation. But if you want to stand in solidarity and say, I get that our kids are important and I'm supporting this building project, then I want to invite you to stand right now. That's a beautiful sight. A lot more beautiful than my little hedgehog head. Apparently you don't get to pick your hair you're born with or how you will go bald. Because I look like a little old man. But I'm going to make one another invitation to you. I hope this is the earliest song that you learned. I bet you at least know it now. Would you just sing with me? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so, little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Father in heaven, no matter what we face in our lives, we want to win together by grace through Jesus, who has overcome this world on our behalf. And by faith, we overcome through him. Lord, inspire us to do right. Help us to win together on this project in our day, and help us to win together and enter your kingdom victorious. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.